praise God for bringing us together. Praise God for his mercies and uh, the traveling mercies that got everyone here t- today. Um, praise God that we have Pastor Jahil uh, being taken in in Shreveport. Uh, let's pray together and settle our hearts. Lord, we give you thanks for being our king, for uh, your mercy and grace in loving us, uh, in presenting your sacrifice through the Son, bringing the Holy Spirit to be here with us, Lord, in this life as we prepare to meet you face to face at the right time. We pray, Lord, that you would settle our hearts this morning. Give us peace, Lord. Open our ears that we might hear you. Uh, Open our hearts that we might receive you, Lord, and be with us, Lord, as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we'll be in the book of Joel. Uh, Old Testament book, so, um, you know, go ahead and open up, and uh, we'll get started. Joel chapter 1 is where we'll be. But before we read the text, let me read you a quote. The foolish children of men do miserably delude themselves in their own schemes and in their confidence in their own strength and wisdom. They do nothing but a shadow. The bigger part of those that heretofore have lived under the same means of grace and are now dead are undoubtedly going to hell. It was not because they were not as wise as those that are now alive and it was not because they did not lay out matters as well for themselves to secure their own escape. If it was so that we could come and speak with them and could inquire of them one by one whether they expected when alive and when they were used to hear about hell ever to be subjects of that misery, we doubtless should hear one and another reply, no, I never intended to come here. I had laid out matters otherwise in my mind. I thought I should contrive as well for myself. I thought my scheme good. I intended to take effectual care, but it came upon me unexpected. I did not look for it at the time, and in that manner, it came as a thief. Death outwitted me. God's wrath was too quick for me. Oh, my cursed foolishness. I was flattering myself and pleasing myself with the vain dreams of what I would do hereafter. And when I was saying peace and security, then suddenly destruction came upon me. Now commentators will tell you that the British colonial Christian Congregationalist who authored this quote, namely Jonathan Edwards, was at the time America's greatest theologian and thinker, particularly The particular segment that I have read comes from his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, a sermon that he delivered in Enfield, Connecticut on July 8, 1741. This was during a period known as the Great Awakening. It was a Protestant revivalist movement which spanned the 1730s and the 1740s. It was an age of renewal during which many were said to have come to faith under the preaching and the teaching of men like Edwards, men whose milestone messages resonated with the shaking power and the quaking effect of life-transforming thunderstorms. 
messages that were interrupted and sometimes discontinued due to the shrieking and the crying and the weeping with which they were received by their convicted audiences. It makes sense now that in today's America, in today's evangelical America, many might consider Jonathan Edwards to be a hero of the faith. For others, however, especially those of African descent, the legacy of Jonathan Edwards may be tainted by the reality that he was both a slave owner and a sympathizer of slavery. These other evangelicals might therefore raise the following question. How can we listen to the message of the man if in the life of the man there's misalignment with his message? A valid point to consider. Yet I think the very same discomfort might arise when the legacy of arguably the greatest orator of the 20th century is examined closely. And by this I mean the legacy of none other than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. On the one hand, who can deny the resonance with which Dr. King's unforgettable letter from the Birmingham jail shook the democratic foundations of the United States? And who can neglect the way his letter jostled the theological underpinnings of the day-to-day -day ecclesiology of the American church? But on the other hand, who could ignore the cloud of controversy that was formed over the allegations of infidelity that were many times pointed in the direction of Dr. King? Surely the shadow of misgivings that are cast upon King is as tall and as broad as that which creates shade over the legacy of Edwards. To say it again, how can we listen to the message of the man if in the life of the man there is misalignment with the message? This is a crucial point, especially for those of us who profess to be Christians. Christians meeting as we are in this historic neighborhood of Anacostia. Situated as it is in the southeast of Washington, D.C., in the District of Columbia, which is the very capital of this highly partisan and highly racialized and largely apostate United States. Brothers and sisters, our country is in a fight about everything, about globalism and about nationalism, about liberalism and about conservatism, about abortion and about immigration, about black lives and about all lives about reparations and about the universal minimum wage. We fight about things that appear to be much more trivial too. About Meghan Markle and about the British paparazzi. About Kanye West and about the Kardashians. About Lizzo and about Jillian Michaels. We even fight about the Marvel Universe and DC Comics and other seemingly unconsequential things. But to our shame, we also fight about who we are and who we ought to be as Christians. And in the midst of this cacophony of chaos which we have conjured up through our continual catfighting, our country is left without clarity about to whom it should give its listening ear. For as readily as one hero might be raised up in the opinions of men, so readily might that ascent of that star be met by a countervailing set of reasons to bring him or her back down low again. Sadly, as it goes for the world, so it goes for the church. But whereas the folly of the world is justification for the gospel, the folly of the church is a stain upon the witness of the saints. In other words, when we Christians put on the robes of hypocrisy, we give the world license to lobby its objection against us. How can we, the world, listen to you, 
the church when in the life of your church there is misalignment with your message. It is in this context and against this backdrop that I believe the wrath of God needs to be understood. The angry God that Jonathan Edwards talks about is not an unstable, unhinged, or unpredictable despot. No, far be it from us to even think it. God is light. In him, there is no darkness. God is perfect. In him, there is no blemish. God is holy. In him, there is no sin. No, the wrath of God is justified because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He made us in his image, but we disobeyed him. He gave us priests and prophets, but we ignored them. He sent his one and only son, and Jesus came, praise God, to fulfill all righteousness, to suffer on the cross for our sins, and to defeat death by rising from the grave. But we rejected him as well. It is therefore well within the good pleasure of the sovereign God to be angry, angry with the selfish, sinful souls of men. Mankind already deserves his physical death. And he has more than earned his eternal death because the wages of sin is death. Thus, it is appointed for a man once to die and face judgment. And judgment begins with the house of God. The Bible tells us that this final judgment will take place on the day of the Lord, when the sheep and the goats will be separated. The sheep are those who by grace have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. They will spend a glorious eternity with God. The goats, however, are those impenitent souls, those who have remained obstinate and defiant even unto their very last breath. They will live out the ghastly curse of being utterly condemned. They will face the fearful, awful, and unrelenting wrath of God. They will be separated eternally, separated from the gift and the goodness and the glory of God. To be sure, the goats are those whom God in his good pleasure will crush without mercy and destroy without remorse in the day of the Lord. Friends, this is the horrible horror that the prophet Joel is urgent to warn against. He writes about this in his three-chapter chronicle. It's a magnificent manuscript that sits at the end of the third quarter of the Old Testament books. Joel depicts a dreadful and inevitable conclusion to human life, at least that portion of human life which falls outside of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Yes, the book of Joel affirms that whoever is included in that portion shall be sinners in the hands of a justifiably angry God. In parceling out his message, this message, the book of Joel does so with stunning effect. It harnesses a, the power of a beautifully poetic structure, an energetic uh, flowing cadence, a dramatic collection of culminating climaxes. Uh, it employs a strikingly vivid set of descriptions, poignant imperatives, and simple conclusions to translate the gravity and the immediacy of the message. And the message of the book of Joel has five essential themes. Firstly, that God is sovereign. Secondly, that the day of the Lord is at hand. Thirdly, that judgment accompanies the day of the Lord. And fourthly, that redemption is the reward for repentance. And fifthly, that destruction lies in wait for the impenitent. Today's sermon covers chapter one in the book of Joel, as I've said. 
And it's the first in a three-part series. By God's grace, in a few weeks, you will hear from pastors Dennis and George regarding chapters 2 and chapters 3. But now before we begin in chapter 1, it may be helpful to note one more thing, which is that there's no small matter of grace and no small act of providence in the fact that God has permitted us to know very little about the author of the book of Joel. We only know that his father was a man named Pethuel, and besides that, we have no other information about the prophet himself. Moreover, theologians are largely split about when exactly the book of Joel was written and to which generation of Israelites its contents were addressed. It is as though God has intentionally mystified the man so that his message might manifest mightily both in a timeless and a timely manner in a way that minimizes potential for our flighty hearts and minds to be distracted. For if we know nothing about the man, our attention has no choice but to rest upon the message. And in doing so, we should be stirred to reflect upon the messenger, about whom and in whose authority and in whose power the message is both crafted and sent. Thus, as we explore this chapter, let us be mindful of the fact that there is no coincidence at all, but only grace in the providence that the name Joel actually means Yahweh is God. Right from the start, the book declares that its contents are not Joel's, but the word of God that came to Joel. In other words, this is God's message. Friends, let us let that revelation brew in our hearts and percolate through our souls as a life-giving tonic. The Lord is God, and God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. Does God speak and then not act? Does God promise and then not fulfill? No, there's no misalignment between God's life and his message. There are no surprises, no letdowns, only truth. We should therefore pay close attention to what God says. With that in mind, let's look to the book of Joel, chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards. Weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of, the, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, a powerful nation beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off the bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. 
Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because the grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not food cut off from before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan! The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them, even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Now, chapter 1, as we see, describes a terrible desolation. It comes suddenly upon the house of Israel in the form of a plague of locusts. It's a colossal catastrophe, one that creates a range of negative effects that we see in verses 5 through 20. There's an environmental impact. As the trees of the field, including the vine and the fig tree and the olive tree, are laid waste, the fields themselves are destroyed and the water brooks dry up. There's a social impact demonstrated by the cutting off of the supply of sweet wine. There's an industrial impact as the seeds under the clods of soil shrivel and the harvest in the field perishes. There's a commercial impact as the storehouses become desolate and the granaries are torn down. The markets are laid bare. Now they should be full of grain and wine and oil and wheat and barley and figs and pomegranates and palm and apples and meat and milk and honey and wool. But the market is empty. There's an impact on well-being as food is cut off from the eyes of the people and they lose their gladness. There's a civic impact as everyone from the elders to the inhabitants are affected. And finally, there's a religious impact as the grain offering and drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. So the book of Joel leaves us with, without a shadow of a doubt that this is a monumental disaster, one which the Israelites are instructed to add to the folklore canon and to the customary tradition of storytelling so that their children to the third generation would know about this. But notice the question in verse 2. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Now at first pass, this may appear to be an innocuous question, but I actually think it's a zapping zinger of an interrogation. I believe some major shade is being thrown, some award-winning covert shade is being thrown in this question to the Israelites. Did you catch it? Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Now, the straightforward answer may perhaps be not in our days and nor in the days of our immediate fathers. But upon deeper reflection, Israel is not unaccustomed to locusts, is it? Remember Egypt and the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 10? Any Israelite familiar with history would be left reeling with, by the implications of the question in verse 2. For in the days of Moses, locusts were a part of God's prescription to judge Egypt for its abuse of God's people. 
But in the days of Joel, locusts had become part of God's prescription to judge God's people for their abuse of him. That's an indictment. I think the question in verse 2 serves as a warning. It is a signal that the word of the Lord is poised to do battle. Battle with the hearts of the Israelites in the name of the Lord for the sake of their souls. The message is this. Israel should be prepared to meet their God. I think that's why in verse 4, it brings discussion about the locusts. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. If you know nothing about locusts, friends, it may be difficult to understand how they might be capable of such degrees of devastation. So allow me to make four points that may bring verse 4 into more vivid light. Firstly, the word locust. It's a collective term that uh, captures various kinds of short-horned grasshoppers. Grasshoppers which under the right circumstances go through a morphological and behavioral set of changes. Changes that cause them to become one highly destructive whirlwind of a force of nature. In other words, locusts are the dark side of grasshoppers. (laughs) They're the Mr. Hyde to grasshoppers Dr. Jekyll. Now, locusts are herbivores, which means they only eat vegetation. However, unlike other herbivore insects, locusts have an unrestricted diet. Anything that grows out of the ground is literally game for them. Rather than bite their food, like some other insects, locusts eat by cutting through the vegetation in small chunks with their mandibles and then chewing through it with their jaws. It is therefore appropriate, as Joel has done, to refer to these creatures as cutting locusts. Secondly, under suitable conditions of drought followed by rapid vegetation growth, serotonin in the brains of these insects triggers astonishing changes. So behaviorally, grasshoppers adapt from being solitary to being gregarious. They develop a strong affinity for each other and converge in very large proximate groups when together in such close contact to the point of uh, overcrowding Higher levels of serotonin will cause the locusts to eat much more, to breed more abundantly, and to even change color. This phase of their existence is known as swarming. And these swarming locusts can number billions of insects spread over thousands, hundreds of thousands of square kilometers. Thirdly, in their constant breeding, they produce millions of baby locusts. They're called nymphs. Unlike butterflies, which are born as worm-looking larvae, these nymphs from the start look and behave a lot like their parent locusts. The only difference is they cannot fly. They therefore get around by hopping. And these young hopping locusts have a ravenous appetite. They eat absolutely everything. Fourthly, as they move together, these cutting swarming and hopping locusts are like a rolling fireball of consumption. They maintain a cohesive structure that makes them appear as a nation or as an army. They have no king, but they march in rank. A military unit with sharp predatorial teeth like those of a lion, fangs which cut through through and engulf all the foliage in perpetual motion. 
when the locusts at the front of the battalion stop to eat, the ones, either, the ones behind them either fly over them or hop around them to devour the next patch of greenery. It's just a process that keeps on going. Locusts can therefore rapidly lay waste to vast terrains of vegetation. And given their large numbers, many of them actually die along the way. Their millions of carcasses emit a vulgar, horrible stench. Their cadavers attack ra attract rats and vultures and flies and other disease-transmitting creatures. In this way, locusts and their corpses can cause the contamination of water sources, the drying up of grasslands, the wilting of both wild and horticultural vegetation, the equivalent of drought conditions across the land, all sorts of airborne, waterborne, food-related, and infectious diseases can occur with a viciousness that can bring any human community down to its knees. So given the propensity of these locusts to cause such devastation, calling them destroying insects is not at all out of place, destroying locusts. Now I realize that I've given you a lot of information about locusts. But I've done so because I want you to see that verse 4 is neither arbitrary nor poetic merely for aesthetic reasons. The book of Joel is fully laden with a profound understanding of entomology, which is the study of insects, and with an extraordinary appreciation of environmental science as well. The marauding insects that continually wave after wave cause obliteration are called cutting locusts and swarming locusts and hopping locusts and destroying locusts by Joel because that is precisely what they are. Now given the magnitude of the tragedy that hits Israel, it is intriguing to me that there is dissonance between the reaction that the people extend and the response that the book of Joel appears to expect. It is clear from the text that the people are put out by the plague of locusts. They're dismayed. The priests mourn in verse 9, and gladness dries up from the children of men in verse 12. So Israel is definitely grieving. But the word of the Lord appears to be looking for something more than mere melancholy. We see this in the imperatives that are used in the chapter. The elders and the inhabitants are instructed to hear and give ear and tell the drunkards are told to awake, and the drinkers of wine to weep and wail, and the tillers of soil are compelled to be ashamed, and the vine dressers to, be, to wail. Finally, the priests are required to put on sackcloth and lament. They are told to consecrate a fast and call a solemn assembly and gather the people to cry out to the Lord. What emerges is that the word of God, the word of the Lord, is concerned about repentance not sadness. Yet the text suggests that the people do not readily turn themselves away from their sins. It appears they behave just like the brood of vipers that John the Baptist would later accuse the Pharisees and the Sadducees of becoming in Matthew 3 verse 8. They were not producing fruit in keeping with repentance. Yet here's a question. How do we know that the Israelites had sinned and needed to repent? Well, the sweeping answer is that there is no one who is righteous, no, not one, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the more contextual answer is that although the locusts have ravaged the land, it appears they have done nothing or very little to affect the hearts of the people. The drunkards continue in their stupor. 
The tillers of the soil persist in their arrogance. The priests mourn selfishly, but do not attend to the repentance of the community as a whole. Thus the word of the Lord demands the attention of the elders and the inhabitants because they do not give it. It orders sobriety because the drunkards do not show it. It mandates shame because the tillers of the soil and the vine dressers do not offer it. It calls for a fast, a solemn assembly, the gathering of the people of God to the house of the Lord because the hearts of the people are not moving in that direction. So let's look at these priests again. In verse 9, we see that the priests mourn, but the poetry of the text gives hint that these ministers of the Lord are not being pious. Their grief is not because they worry over the sacrifices that are no longer being offered to the Lord. No, not at all. They are depressed because no offering means no portion for them. Deuteronomy 18 verse 3 to 5 clarifies that the share due to the priests from the people who sacrifice a bull or a sheep includes the shoulder, the internal organs, and the meat from the head. And the people are also to give the priests their first fruits of grain and new wine and oil and the, the first wool that is sheared from the flock. Now in the book of Joel, the priests certainly mourn, but they do nothing else without the urging from Joel. That's a huge giveaway. The word of the Lord is concerned about repentance, but these priests are only concerned with their livelihoods and their stomachs. At the same time, the children of man, which is basically everybody else, are no different. The language in verse 12 suggests that they only become depressed because the fun is gone, and the work is gone, and the food is gone. But then, who are you if your joy is only proportional to the fatness of your wallet and the fullness of your belly. Who, who are you? The book of Joel then cleverly compares the selfish people to the selfless creation. The creation grieves, but not for itself. It grieves because it has lost its capacity to serve. In verse 10, the ground mourns because it can no longer contribute to the worship of the Lord through man's offering. In verse 20, when the water brooks dry up, the, Greek, the beasts pant, but they do so for the Lord. This is another striking indictment on the people of God. They do not appear to even give the Lord a single thought. The book of Joel also offers an interesting reflection regarding the similarity between locusts and people. So if you think about it, there's a Dr. Jekyll and a Mr. Hyde transformation in both of them. In the case of the locusts, the cause is serotonin. But in the case of mankind, the cause is sin. Sin transforms the children of man into the sons of perdition. They become the objects of wrath, or as Jonathan Edwards called it, sinners in the hands of an angry God. A God who promises to wield his weapons of destruction in judgment against those who refuse to repent. This is why verse 14 calls for a fast and a solemn assembly and the collection of the people to cry out to the Lord. I think verse 14 has echoes of Solomon's prayer of dedication, the one in 1 Kings chapter 8 when he finished building the temple. A portion of Solomon's prayer says this, if there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if the enemy besieges them in their land at their gates, 
whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands towards this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, only you, know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Now verse 14 also echoes the Lord's response to Solomon, which we find in Second Chronicles 7 verse 13. I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locust to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Friends, the good news in verse 14 is that if locusts are the prescription for God's judgment upon his people, then there is also a prescription for God's redemption of his people when they repent. So in verse 19 of the book of Joel, we see a modeling of repentance as the Lord desires it. The word of the Lord says, to you, O Lord, I call. In other words, repentance is not complicated. All people need do is express with their mouths that God is the only one who can relieve them from the devastation that comes by virtue of their own sin. To you, O Lord, I call. Now, unfortunately, mankind has a well-documented track record of not responding to God's calls for repentance. We see this in the book of Amos, another minor prophet, just one book over from the book of Joel in the Old Testament. In Amos chapter 4, the Lord explains how he took away the bread from the Israelites. He withheld rain from them. He struck them with blight and mildew. He sent locusts to devour their lands, their gardens, their vineyards, their fig trees, and their olive trees. He struck them with pestilence like the Egyptians. He killed their young men. He carried off their horses. He made a stench of their camp and much more. The Lord did this because Israel was in sin. And yet, the Israelites failed to return to him. Therefore, says the Lord, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Prepare to meet your God. That doesn't sound like the Lord is playing around. Friends, there is a horror that awaits those who rebel against the Lord. Because there is a final judgment when they will come face to face with the living God, with the Lord of hosts himself. And when they meet him, they will do so as the enemies of God. Friends, woe betide anyone whose life concludes in that terrifying way which is why verse 15 in the book of Joel is urgent to cry out alas for the day for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the almighty it comes the writer of Hebrews 
puts the same thought in another way. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, the word says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Because the only outcome for the ungodly in such an encounter is destruction. I tell you, if the Israelites in the days of Joel understood how close they were to the flame of God's wrath, if they knew how close they were to missing out on an eternity of joy with God, I have absolutely no doubt that they would have done what Joel chapter 1 verse 8 instructs. Lament like a bride for the bridegroom of her youth. Well, friends, what about you? Are you moved by the book of Joel? Or do the thousands of years between you and the Israelites make it difficult for you to relate? Friend, don't buy the lie. The book of the Joel is as relevant today as it was then. The Lord was there then, and the Lord is here now. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is still sovereign. The day of the Lord is still at hand. Judgment still accompanies the day of the Lord. Redemption is still the reward for repentance. And destruction still lies in wait for the impenitent. Now, if you need proof that nothing is new under the sun, then I have just the thing for you. You should know that even as we speak, East Africa is facing the worst locust plague right now in 25 years. The crisis is huge. It's a massive threat to food security. In fact, some estimates suggest that the desert locusts that are currently swarming in Kenya in just one day can consume the same amount of food as 84 million people might eat over the course of the same 24 hours. 84 million people. That's scary. Thus, for many of the people in East Africa today, these days, these days right now, today, are the days of Joel. Now, some of you may be thinking, I feel bad for the East Africans. But in the words of that great philosopher, Childish Gambino, this is America, the greatest nation in the world. And we haven't had a locust outbreak since the 1930s. I think that means we're pretty safe, right? Well, if that's what you really think, then I have news for you. The book of Joel is not about food security. The book of Joel is about soul security. Do you remember the words of the Lord in Luke 12, verse 15? One's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. And do you remember the parable of the rich fool, which was in the same chapter? The man wanted to tear down his barns and build bigger ones because he had a plentiful harvest. He said to his soul, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And what about the things you've stored up? Whose will they be now? Friend, the question remains, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? When your security is directly proportional to the fatness of your wallet and the fullness of your belly. Ask yourself, who are you if that's you? 
In God's sight, it makes no difference whether you tear down your granaries because your grain has dried up or if you tear down your barns to build bigger ones because your harvest is too plentiful. When the Lord requires your soul of you, your inheritance will be destruction. Unless, of course, you repent. Now, that doesn't mean that God is a harsh master. It just means that you are a sinner in need of a savior. Friend, if you hear the voice of the Lord today, do not harden your heart. First Pete, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 to 10 says this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So friend, don't do the easy thing. Do not brush off the book of Joel. Instead, choose to do the difficult thing. Confront your soul. Listen to the words of John the Baptist in Matthew 3, verse verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I think it's fitting that John the Baptist lived on locusts and honey as he prepared the way for the Lord. Locusts and honey, as if to illustrate that Jesus is Lord over both the bitterness of judgment and the sweetness of redemption. So do not wait, friend. Do not wait. Act today. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Now to those of you who already profess Christ, the book of Joel has a message for you too. Christianity is not a license for complacency. Remember the Israelites in the days of Joel? They saw themselves as God's people. That's no different to the evangelicals in today's America and people across the world. Friend, don't be that goat who thinks he or she is a sheep. As it says in 2 Peter 1 verse 10, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. We are indeed saved by faith and not by works, but works demonstrate our faith. And it's true that until we meet him face to face in glory, there will always be for all of us, whether we're Jonathan Edwards or Dr. King, for all of us, there will be some degree of misalignment between our lives and the message of the Lord. That includes all of us. But that's because we are not yet perfected in Christ. So in the meantime, our responsibility is to repent continually and to produce fruit that is in keeping with repentance. So if you find your passion for Christ failing, friend, fan the flame of your faith Fan it into a fervent fire for the Lord. Remember your first love. Repent and do the works that you did at first. Repentance will lead you to Christ. And Christ will lead you to love. And love will let the world know that we are Christians. And the ears of those who strain for the truth will find a pleasing sound in our voices. Because our voices will carry the word of the Lord and our lives will reflect the message of Christ and our witness will be a bounty and not a stain to the work of the gospel in the world. 
And all of this, all of this will be to the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let us produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Let us do so lest the locusts come and take our harvest. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your mercy and grace to us in, the, in our lives. We praise you for the book of Joel. We thank you that you have given us scripture to open our eyes that Christianity, Lord, is not, a, it's not an option for complacency. Whether we're Israelites in the days of Joel or we're evangelical Christians in the days of today, Lord, we can always turn our backs from you for, for, away from you. Lord, we can always fall short of the glory of God. But Lord, with your grace and your mercy, repentance will continue to be the way that we live, Lord, so that we might give our lives to you. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not responded to your word, Lord, who has not heard your call for repentance, who has not heard the call of Christ, we pray that this would be the day that they would come to know you. And if there are any here who have felt their love for you, Lord, become less secure, less confident, less fruitful, Lord, fan the flame of their faith so they might love you more and do the works that they did in the beginning. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.